It's time for Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, inviting the atheist, agnostic, and skeptic to examine for themselves the evidence for the Christian faith. We are all limited by what we do not know and by the things we think we know but are not true. Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott. Today I finish my discussion of Plato's analysis of the three components of knowledge. For all of us, there are some things we know and some things that we know that we don't know. For example, the topics of 17th century architecture, brain surgery, or rocket science. Those topics are probably beyond almost everyone. We can all cite cases where we have been wrong in the past, mistakenly thinking we had knowledge when we did not. We have been deceived by our own senses, and we confused appearance with reality and mistakenly thought we had knowledge. The vital question is, what exactly does it take to know something? Knowledge requires more than belief. It has to be true belief, but it is more than that. In episode 47, I discussed Plato's analysis of knowledge. He said that knowledge was that a true belief had the additional aspect of justification. That is, Plato's theory is that knowledge equals justified true belief, or JTB for short. This analysis was accepted as the standard definition for propositional knowledge for over 2,500 years. But some have objected to Plato's analysis of knowledge. A few counterexamples against the standard JTB definitions have been published, but these did not injure Plato's definition until in 1963 when the American philosopher Edmund Gettier published a three-paged paper entitled Is Justified True Belief Knowledge? His paper presented two short counterexamples that there are cases where individuals appear to have a justified true belief regarding a claim but still do not have actual knowledge because the reasons for the belief, while appearing to offer justification, was not really justification because the belief turned out to be false. According to Gettier, the counterexamples show that while justified true belief may be necessary for knowledge, it is not sufficient. Thus, Gettier claims that the JTB account for knowledge is not only inadequate, for it does not account for all of the necessary conditions for knowledge, but, Gettier argued, his counterexamples show that the JTB account of knowledge is false, 
and thus requires a different conceptual analysis to track correctly what we mean by knowledge. Thus, Plato's standard definition for knowledge of propositions, like Humpty Dumpty, has had a great fall. Gettier's paper launched a flurry of epistemological activity attempting to revise the JTV theory. They were trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. John L. Pollock and Joseph Cruz have stated that the Gettier problem has fundamentally altered the character of contemporary epistemology and has become a central problem of epistemology since it poses a clear barrier to analyzing knowledge. At this point, I will cease my discussion of knowledge and wait until epistemologists clear up the murky waters. Should you like to study more about Gettier cases and strategies to cope with Gettier examples, see Chapter 3 of Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview by J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig, or the article the Analysis of Knowledge in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, first published in 2001 and revised in 2017. I now turn to the question of God's existence. This will be the final point of the 12 points that show Christianity is true. The question of whether there is a conclusive argument for the existence of God has been debated throughout history, with very intelligent people having taken both sides of the dispute. The traditional theistic arguments fall into four main categories, cosmological, regarding the universe, teleological, regarding design, ontological regarding being, and moral regarding values and duties. Allow me to discuss three of those categories. There are two basic forms of the cosmological argument. The first says that the cosmos, or universe, needed a cause at its beginning. The second form argues that it needs a cause to continue existing. In brief, a cosmological argument for the beginning of the universe, called the Kalam argument, says, first, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Second, the universe began to exist. Third, therefore, the universe has a cause. The teleological argument can be formulated in various ways. Here is one form. First, every design has a designer. Second, the universe manifests design. Third, therefore, the universe has a designer. Another form is the fine-tuning argument. First, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either necessity, chance, or design. Second, fine-tuning is not due to physical necessity or chance. Third, therefore, 
fine tuning is due to design. A popular version of the moral argument is due to C.S. Lewis. First, there are objective moral laws. Second, moral laws come from a moral law giver. Third, therefore, a moral lawgiver exists. I like William Lane Craig's version of the moral argument. First, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Second, objective moral values and duties do exist. Third, therefore, God exists. Most of the atheists' objections to these arguments are traceable to the critiques by David Hume and Immanuel Kant. It has become conventional wisdom that there are no good arguments for the existence of God. But insofar as we mean by a good argument, an argument that is valid and consists of true premises, that are more plausible than their negations, there do appear to be good arguments for God's existence. And there are many philosophers on the contemporary scene who think so. Indeed, J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig say that there is a resurgence of interest in natural theology, that branch of theology that seeks to prove God's existence apart from the resources of authoritative divine revelation. Alvin Plantinga, perhaps the most important philosopher of religion now writing, has defended what he calls two dozen or so arguments for God's existence. Ed Fazer, in a book, gives five such arguments. In recent times, the militant opponents of Christianity accuse the theist of being delusional and irrational. This is nothing new. In earlier generations, Karl Marx asserted that the theist must have a mental disorder that caused invalid thinking. The psychiatrist Sigmund Freud wrote that a person who believed in a creator God was delusional and only held those beliefs due to wish fulfillment. This is now reiterated by Richard Dawkins' book entitled The God Delusion. Frederick Nietzsche, the originator of the God is Dead movement, was aware that atheism would lead to the advent of nihilism, the absence of any meaning, value, and purpose. Sir Richard Dawkins, in his book, River Out of Eden, page 133, confirmed Nietzsche's prediction when he wrote that in a world without God, there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. He adds, DNA neither cares nor knows it just is, and we dance to its music. The atheist and contemporary author John Gray agrees with Nietzsche and Dawkins. He says, without God, there is no meaning, no personhood, no responsibility, and no morality. 
Those claims are now simply parroted by a new generation of atheists who claim that theism is intellectually unwarranted and life is meaningless. Is this really the case? Is belief in God a rationally unacceptable position to hold? I think not. Let's change the question. Is there a logical and reasonable argument for the existence of God? Outside of referencing the Bible, can a case for the existence of God be made that refutes the position of both the old and new atheists and give sufficient warrant for believing in the Creator? Yes, I think so. Moreover, I believe that in demonstrating the validity of an argument for the existence of God, the case for atheism is shown to be intellectually weak. Atheists frequently argue that none of the arguments give a recognizable concept of God. The response of many Christian apologists is to relate the various arguments as a lawyer does while constructing a case in court. The argument for God's existence is a cumulative case in which each individual conclusion contributes some small portion of a much larger concept. Even in total, the arguments may not provide a fully developed picture of an infinite God. After all, we will give only a finite picture. There is, however, a sufficient description to allow for clear identification and to defeat any naturalistic explanation. Allow me to give a summary of this episode. I discussed Plato's tripart theory of knowledge, justified, true belief, or JTB for short. This has been the standard definition of knowledge for over 2,500 years. In 1963, Edmund Gettier published a paper that he claimed showed the JTB account was false. This has generated a flurry of epistemological activity that attempts to put knowledge back on a firm foundation. At that point, I ceased my discussion of knowledge, waiting on the epistemologist to clear up the murky waters regarding knowledge. I then turned to the question of God's existence. I discussed the basic forms of the cosmological, teleological, and the moral arguments. And I said, that the conclusions of these arguments would form a recognizable, cumulative, finite picture of an infinite God. Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave94 at this email address, dougapple at wave94.com. And be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6.45 p.m. on Wave94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app.
Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott.